This week on Today in Space. Have we only gone as deep as six miles into the surface of the, the planet or towards the core? I think it's, I can't remember if it's six or eight miles, but it's something, it's in that order of magnitude, yes. What What's the, I guess, I, I know part of this answer, but what is stopping us from going any deeper? So basically every time you get deeper and deeper in the earth, the pressure increases and the temperature increases. And if you've ever been scuba diving or tried to dive deep, yeah. you, you have a sense of how pressure can affect the human body. And, can, and the same thing is true for equipment. The key thing to remember here is scientists are humans. Yes. And humans very much have their own kind of biases and, and beliefs and so forth. And so you have to kind of always try and keep yourself grounded and understand that you know your ego is not um, embedded in that thing you discovered or that Right. theory you have right the important right. thing about being a scientist is to be able to change and to follow the reasoning and the the data Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Today in Space. I am your Space Science Podcast host from the East Coast, Alex Girofanos. And today, we're back for another episode of People of Science. And we're very excited today to talk to Dr. Sabina Stanley, the author of What's Hidden Inside Planets, um, coming out of uh, John Hopkins Press. Dr. Sabina Stanley, thank you for joining us. So happy to be here. Awesome. So. It's great to have you. I've loved the book so far. And what I'd love to do before we get into that, give us a little bit about your STEM origin story. Where did this all start? Where did it begin? And what were some moments that made you think, oh, this is what I want to do? Yeah, great question. Uh, so there, there's, first of all, a real origin story here in that I grew up in an impact crater, which is basically a giant hole in the ground where a meteor about 1.8 billion years ago smashed into the surface of the earth and created a big hole that brought up a lot of resources natural resources from the deeper interior and so it was a mining town so i actually grew up in a place that was really related to planetary science i didn't really know much about this while growing up <laughs> but i think it must have been somewhere in my subconscious yeah um, but really where i got interested in this you know i was a kid in who kind of liked science and math, but didn't really know what to do about that. Um, mm. I didn't have any family who were in academia or professors or scientists. So everyone thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, you know, then I, then I took my first biology class that involved the dissection and realized that, no, that was never going to happen no. <laughs> for me. Um, I was really fortunate in my uh, undergrad days to have an incredible mentor mm. at my university. And he taught me my first year physics class but he kept, he was a geophysicist. So he was someone who studied the physics of the earth. And so he kept going back to examples that involved earth and the planets. And it was all very interesting. I was like, hmm. So eventually by about my third year in my undergrad degree, I realized, you know what? I think I want to study planets. And that was how it all, it all went from there. That's crazy. That's crazy. Now, um, when did you find out that you grew up in a in an impact crater? Was that like something that the town was aware of or did you learn? Yeah, that? yeah. So okay. it was just my yeah. cluelessness, not the towns, right? Everyone yeah, there. Absolutely. But you also, you know, you hear it as a kid and you you don't understand the the importance of that or what yeah. it really means, right? You're like, okay, yeah, it's an impact crater. There's lots of mining going around. 
but you don't realize the sort of planetary implications of it. Yeah, I have a somewhat similar story. So I went to school for aerospace engineering. Uh, I live right by a local airport and I was seeing planes all the time. My favorite thing with my grandfather was the gliders. It was always there, but I, like you, I, um, and I talk about it throughout the podcast here, sometimes it just doesn't click until it clicks. Yeah. Um, so t- tell me a little bit about the the mentorship too, and, and maybe some other mm-hmm. people you had in your life that, that you think were kind of instrumental because a lot of mm-hmm. what we're interested right now in the podcast is like that human factor. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I love about your book is that it's not mm-hmm. coming at it from a super technical, although there's plenty of technical knowledge in here, it's coming from a human perspective. And I like that you intertwine parts of your life in there. Um, what kind of people have helped play a role to get you, you know, where you are today? Yeah, great. So I think the first person was actually my high school music teacher. His name was mm. Dick Van Ratchoven. And he was, although I'm not in music, I, it was something that was really a part of me and still yeah. is. And he was a person who really inspired in me a, a love of teaching and a love of kind of engaging with people for whatever they're interested in and so forth. And he was just a really amazing human being. Uh, then, while also in high school, I have to say that sort of after after class, I'd get home and get ready to do my homework and sit in front of the TV in those days. And, you know, we didn't have Netflix at those times, so you had to watch <laughs> whatever was on. And at that time, Star Trek The Next Generation was on, and I started watching it. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, so I, I tend to consider Jean-Luc Picard, Captain Jean-Luc Picard as oh. my other mentor, because that I really saw him oh, as that. someone that I I really wanted to either interact with or, or <laughs> wanted to to develop some of the same characteristics as maybe the way to think about it. Absolutely. So that was a huge influence and really kind of led me into more the space route than let's say some other science. Mm. Um, I realized that this idea of discovering other worlds out there and what they're made of and what they what can happen there was really exciting. And then the third mentor was my university professor. His name is mm-hmm. uh, Jerry Mitrovica. And he was just a really um, human person, right? He would he would he was an amazing scientist and an amazing lecturer, but he would always regale us with these stories. Um, and they just kind of brought him down to earth, right? It was like, oh, yeah. yes, this is a fancy, famous professor but he does silly things just like we do. Right. And it just yeah. really seemed like, you know what, maybe I could do this. And that really helped. And he's now a dear friend and we've collaborated and, and we're on papers together and everything. Now so that, that's really cool. <laughs> um, so uh, tell us a little bit about the the college experience before we dive into like mm-hmm. planetary science and the insides of planets. Um, PhD. Mm-hmm. You went for that. How was that? Because I've talked to a few folks who have, we're in the middle of it, have done it. Uh, like it always seems like it's slightly different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, so I was the first in my family to kind of go to the PhD route and I mm. didn't really know what to expect. Right. I think I kept going, I kept, I decided mm. to go and do a PhD because I liked school, wasn't really ready to leave it to get a real job per se. Right. right. And so I was like, okay, the next degree I can get is a PhD. And I moved to the U.S. I, I was in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts at, at Harvard University. And uh, that was a really, it was a great time because I was surrounded by some amazing colleagues and friends and we kind of all learned together and that was really great. But I also really, I suffered from the imposter syndrome and um, not knowing anything about it, especially I was doing my PhD in geophysics Mm. And my undergrad degree was in physics and astronomy, and I had never taken an earth science course whatsoever. So I um, remember 
going to my first geophysics classes and they kind of were right in and I had to kind of raise my hand and go like, <laughs> what's a subduction zone? Because I had no idea. Yeah. These are things that you might learn in like your intro to geology class, right? Mm -hmm. And I just had no idea. So it was a bit of a learning curve, but that mm -hmm. was actually um, kind of the norm in earth and planetary science departments. Mm -hmm. These departments where we study planets and we study the earth, everyone comes in with very different expertise. Some people come in as like experimental chemists. Other people might come in as, as mm. mathematical modelers and so forth. And we all just kind of get there and we realize we like using our techniques all to study the earth and planet. So we all kind of yeah. learn from each other. And I really appreciated the ability to, to learn and to teach others about what I knew going in. Yeah. And it, it teaching, I think that's one of the most valuable, like, uh, like fifth gears that you can do when you're learning something mm -hmm. is once you get to a point where you can start teaching somebody else, especially like in another class, that's where it really starts to stick. Absolutely. hundred yeah. percent agree. So, so, t so break it down for us. Where, where did your journey towards the inside of planets come to? So as a planetary science, I feel like there's a, there's kind of a wide breadth of different places you can go and you went right to the center. T <laughs> tell us about that. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way. That's a, that's a great way to think about it. Uh, I, I don't know if this is going to be a satisfying answer, but it was basically by accident. Um, Love it. So it was my third year undergrad and I had been planning to become like a cosmologist or do something, study mm. black holes or something like that. And by that point, you're actually learning about those things in your undergrad classes. Right. And I was like, you know what? All that stuff's kind of really far away. And yeah. I don't know if I'll ever like be able to touch it or be able to kind of study it up close. And so I realized, you know, I want to kind of do something closer to home, more planet like. So I went mm -hmm. to my mentor, Jeremy Trevig, and I said, hey, I'd like to kind of for the summer go somewhere and do a research project um, as an undergrad. And he said, you know what? I have two colleagues at Harvard who are doing some work. Maybe you'd like to work with one of them. And I was like, OK, so I got these um, two professors at Harvard to send me ideas for projects. One of them had to do with studying um, tsunamis produced by earthquakes. Oh. And another one had to do with the magnetic fields of Uranus and Neptune. Mm. And I knew nothing about any of these topics. And I just <laughs> kind of went, Uranus and Neptune, magnetic fields sound cool. So I picked that one. And so that. my intro to this was really just kind of what was available at the time. Mm. Um, but it really brought together what I realized when, when I was studying it is I, I really enjoy sort of the the modeling aspect, the computer modeling, doing these cool mm. simulations of fluid flows and magnetic fields. Yeah. And so I could get that out of um, studying these magnetic fields of planets. So, so, and the rest is history, basically. That's crazy. No, I love that answer. I actually think uh, that's what I was looking for because I think okay. most folks, when they're looking to get into this career, I, I did this myself, you, you kind of look for the job that you're going to do. And it's almost never that, uh, or, or most people don't ever do that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, you, you, you followed what was interesting to you, which I think is kind of the best advice we could give to some to folks who mm -hmm. are, who are looking for that. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about, especially for folks who, um, may not be aware about planetary science, give us a little breakdown of, of what it is that you're doing. And then kind of mm -hmm. let's jump into the book and, and talk mm -hmm. about what it's, what it is. Sure. So what I do, I'm really interested in what happens in the deepest parts of planets, both Earth and all the other planets as well, um, because in the cores of planets, you actually generate magnetic fields. And the magnetic field, although it's generated deep inside a planet, is able to escape the planet and surrounds us. For example, here on Earth, we have a magnetic field that surrounds us. And this magnetic field is incredibly important 
for it to be a nice place here on the surface of the earth. So for example, the magnetic field shields us from cosmic rays and, and high energy solar wind particles that would bombard the surface if it wasn't here. Uh, and that makes the place kind of less radio radioactive, essentially. <laughs> um, you, you experience less high energy radiation is what I should say. And also it is because it's not being bombarded by all these solar wind particles, we get to keep our atmosphere, which is kind of cool because we like nice. to breathe, yep. right? So these are all <laughs> the sorts of things. So I like the fact that um, when you're studying the deep interior of the planet, first of all, it's really hard to study. Like there's, you can't just go drill down there and, and check it out, right? So you yeah. have to come up with sneaky ways to try and investigate the interior. And I kind of like that. I like using this sort of detective approach where yeah. you like, what sort of evidence could tell me about this region that I absolutely can never visit or see? Yeah. It's very Sherlock Holmes. I love that. Yes. Um, yeah. So is this true? I think I was seeing this the other day. Have we only gone as deep as six miles into the surface of the, the planet or towards the core? Yeah, that is correct. I think it's, I can't remember if it's six or eight miles, but it's something it's in that order of magnitude. Yes. What What's the, I guess I, I know part of this answer, but what is stopping us from going any deeper? Yeah, great question. So basically every time you get deeper and deeper in the earth, the pressure increases and mm -hmm. the temperature increases. And if you've ever been scuba diving or tried to dive deep, yeah. you, you have a sense of how pressure can affect the human body. And, can, and the same thing is true for equipment. So as the yeah. pressure gets higher and the temperature gets higher, equipment just does not like existing in that environment. So the deepest we've ever been able to go in a borehole with drilling equipment is, you know, in less than 10 miles. Uh, and Crazy. like the deepest human minds are less than two miles. Right. So. Yeah, that's that's wild, um, especially when you put it to scale of just how big. I mean, our planet's not a big planet, but that's yeah, so there's still you, a lot more. <laughs> yeah. So if you think of from the surface of the Earth to the to the center, right? You're talking about thousands of miles. So it's, we barely, barely scratch the surface. It's crazy. That's crazy. So t tell me a little bit more about how we use these kind of techniques to estimate like different planets that are out there and what's, what's at their cores. Mm -hmm. So I like to tell people that it's kind of similar to what your doctor might do. Like, let's say you show up at your doctor's mm. office and you're like, you know, I have an ache or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first instinct of your doctor hopefully is not to kind of like cut you open and, and look for it but is instead to run a bunch of tests and so mm. the types of tests you can do things like ct scans mris those kinds of things mm. are basically ways to use light or or force fields to image the inside mm. of you and we do similar sorts of things for planets so we can use a range of different fields so we use gravity for example we use magnetic fields uh and we can and we also use waves from uh quakes caused by earthquakes for example here on earth or mars quakes on mars yeah so we can use these types of sounding and and imaging to really see what is going on deep inside a planet uh, and there was a part of your book where you mentioned how um you were comparing kind of this technique of looking at other planets and and kind of classifying them as as families or you know dna of a different planet um could you go more into that i loved that comparison yeah, thanks. So believe it or not, all the planets in our solar system, we all kind of came from the same stuff, right? Mm. There was initially this gas and dust filled disk that surrounded the growing sun at the center. And all of that material, like it all kind of came from the same place. So it's not surprising right. that all the planets in our solar system, they have some similarities, just like people in a 
family will have some genetic similarities, right? right. Um, but they're not all the same because they all kind of sample different parts of the genetic spectrum, right? So right. in planets, they sample different parts of the the uh, the disk that surrounded it. They also experience different environments, right? So there's a nurture mm. part of that. That was the nature part. There's also a nurture part. The planets closer to the sun were in very ho much hotter temperatures than the planets further out in the solar system. Right. And so you can actually now, when we look at the planets, get a sense of how those types of conditions affect the formation of a planet, right? Earth yeah. Earth is would not be Earth if we were sitting out where Jupiter sits, for example. Right. So that's one way to think about it. Mm. No, that's so good. Um, it, it really makes me think about how much is really out there. I think for a long time, we were kind of stuck in this mentality of, uh, I mean, I, Carl Sagan's birthday was was recently. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, thinking about there was only one exoplanet discovered when he passed. Think about how many we have now. Just to think about what he would think about that and he would say about that uh, and how much he was so good at explaining how massive things are um, and how special we can be. Um, what What is kind of in, in the last five, 10 years, even for you, what's changed in your perception as a planetary scientist to, as to what's out there? Yeah, great question. So sort of... It's going to sound contradictory, but two things. Mm. First of all, there is so much out there, right? We've yeah. currently discovered over 5,000 exoplanets, planets um, orbiting other stars. And, you know, we're only limited essentially at this point by the amount of time we've been observing things and right. the uh, technology. So things are going to, mm -hmm. we're going to just keep discovering more and more and more. Yeah. Uh, then you get a spacecraft like uh, JWST, the, um, the telescope that, was launched last year. Oh, look, you got, there it is right, right there. Here. And it's going to completely change just the quality of information we can get. So with JWST, we'll be able to analyze what the atmospheres of these planets are made of. Yeah. And if you get to know what the atmospheres are made of, you can kind of start making some inferences about, mm. about what's going on on the planet, right? Is it, Yeah. does it have life? For example, I think that's right. a question. If someone from space, if aliens out there in space looked at the earth and studied our atmosphere, they would be able to tell that life existed here. Mm. And so we have to, we're basically asking the same question out there. Mm. Now, although I say all of that, and I say there's so much out there, so many possibilities, I really do think that earth is quite unique and we mm. need to really appreciate the fact that a lot of things had to go right <laughs> in yeah. order for there to be life here. And it's, and sure, there's probably life somewhere on another planet, but it's not that easy to just go to another planet and make it a nice livable planet, right? Yeah. There's these ideas of going to Mars or other places and we'll just kind of recreate Earth. That's not going to happen, right? We yeah. need to kind of uh, work on understanding our planet and making sure that uh, we keep it a nice habitable place to live. Sure. And uh, give me uh, an example, if, if you would, of, uh, of just one way that uh, Earth is special um, and, and as unique as you were saying. So Earth is the only planet in our solar system that has liquid water flowing on the surface regularly. And that's just because we have the right conditions in terms of the, the uh, radiation getting from our sun right. uh, and sort of the atmospheric pressure on the surface, right? So you need to mm -hmm. be a certain um, distance away from your star and getting the certain amount of radiation. But you also need to have kind of the right size of planet to have kind of a rocky composition, 
Right. And then you need to have the right sort of stuff in your atmosphere. Um, and admittedly, you know, we don't, we know, we have one data point in terms of what conditions you need to make life, right? right. So right. <laughs> who knows if there are others, but based on what we yeah. know, right, if we look around there, there aren't that many places in the solar system mm. that have those conditions. Mm. Uh, so what about uh, places like Enceladus? Are you, are you excited mm -hmm. to be able to get hands on with something like that? So you're right. So there are a few places that we know have global liquid water oceans. Mm. They're all below the surface. Right. So there's none flowing on this on the surface where we can easily go and check them out. Right. Mm. So the moons in the outer solar system, the outer solar system has a ton of water. It's just really cold out there. So it's, it's all like frozen. Right. right? So um, Enceladus, Europa is another one that's a moon of Jupiter. They have this nice ice shell, but underneath that, maybe about, we don't exactly know how deep, but you're talking tens of kilometers deep, there is a liquid water ocean in those yeah. bodies. And so there might be life in there and we just have to figure out how would we detect it? How could we sample it? Um, but the Europa Clipper mission um, scheduled to, to go to Europa next year is a good so close. Um, place. The, the moon that's actually most exciting to me is a different moon. It's the Ooh. moon Titan of oh, Saturn. Okay. Yeah. So let me, now I'm going to try to convince you that Titan is a place to go look for. <laughs> I'm listening. So first of all, Titan's just really cool because um, it's the only other planetary body in our solar system that has a nitrogen-based atmosphere like Earth and has a thick atmosphere. Mm. So the pressure at the surface of Titan is about one and a half atmospheres. Okay. Now, Titan's small, so its gravity is low. Okay. So the coolest thing about Titan is if you, for example, strap a couple pieces of cardboard to your arms and flap them while on the surface of Titan, you can fly. So buoyancy is really easy on Titan. Uh, and the Dragonfly mission, which is um, scheduled to go out and visit Titan, is essentially going to do this. It's basically a dual quadcopter mm -hmm. that's going to fly around, land on the surface, do a bunch of science, get back up, fly somewhere else, land somewhere else. Uh, so the amazing thing about Titan is it's the only other planetary body in the solar system that also has liquids flowing on the surface. Mm. Now they're not liquid water, they're liquid hydrocarbons, things like methane and ethane. So, you know, no swim in there or anything, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you're basically talking about the building blocks of complex molecules, right? The things that we think eventually make amino acids, mm. proteins, life, right? So you have almost yeah. all the right conditions and ingredients for complex chemistry and maybe even life on Titan right at the surface. Uh, so right. I think it would be really interesting and I'm excited to see what the Dragonfly mission finds there. That would be very exciting, especially with, uh, we have ingenuity on Mars with way mm -hmm. less atmosphere uh, flying around like a like a kid with, with caffeine. I mean, so uh, this is, uh, Titan's gonna be a playground for Dragonfly. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. All right. All right. I, I like it. That Titan's definitely higher on the list after that. You know, being able to fly is pretty sweet. So I, I think yeah. <laughs> if you all, if all you need is cardboard, I'm, I think I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> so um, let's talk about some of the recent missions um, that, that have been happening, like, uh, like Psyche that's launching to 16 Psyche. We've had uh, Osiris-Rex that just had the sample return. Mm -hmm. Um Tell me a little bit about those missions and how, as a planetary scientist, they uh, 
how do they excite you? What, 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 what do you get out of uh, missions like those? Mm -hmm. So the psyche mission to 16 psyche is, is very cool because it's going to an entirely different type of planetary body that we've never been to before. It's going to a metal world. So psyche is this asteroid. Uh, it's kind of like this potato shaped asteroid. It's about 170 miles across. Uh, and it's, way more metal rich than anything else. So on the surface, mm. we actually see a lot of iron uh, from telescopic observations here. Mm. And so the question is, what's a metal world like, right? We know rock worlds, we right. know water worlds, we know gas worlds, but what's a metal world like? And so it'll be really interesting to see what does a volcano look like on this thing? What does an right. impact crater look like on a thing? And yeah. the reason it's a we want to understand it is actually because this metal world is basically a giant ball of iron is probably very similar to the iron at the center of the earth. So right. we believe 16 Psyche is the leftover of some collision that hit an asteroid way back when and left just the iron core exposed. So going to 16 Psyche is kind of like being able to journey to the center of the earth and going and studying our core. Yeah. So we're really excited to see. Yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like an easy way to go investigate the core of a planet. So that's very exciting. Cool. Is there anything else that maybe doesn't hit the top of the list, but uh, Psyche could be? So, yes, and right. So yeah. <laughs> we know it's metal rich, right? right? And so how do you make that? Is it possible that something formed just out of the metals in an area? It's very unlikely, but you, mm. can, you can never kind of rule it out, right? Um, yeah. But we think, you know, in our in terms of the planets, a psyche might be quite similar to mercury in a way so the planet mercury mm. is also very small and it has a large iron content not as large as um, psyche but it does have a large iron content and we don't fully understand how psych uh, how mercury lost its rocky part its outer mm. mantle bit um, but it might have been from a glancing collision that kind of tore off all the mantle or it might have been from some sort of weird photo evaporation process that happened yeah. um but Psyche might have these other weird mechanisms. So hopefully going there and taking uh, detailed measurements from a variety of instruments will help to kind of unravel that question. Absolutely. What about um, asteroid Bennu uh, with OSIRIS-REx? Mm -hmm. So the amazing thing about the OSIRIS-REx mission is that went there, booped an asteroid, yeah. picked up some stuff, and then brought it back to Earth. So we actually now have samples on the surface of the Earth of this asteroid. Yeah, uh, that's really going to allow us. So the amazing thing about things about having samples on Earth is that we can do a lot more experiments, more detailed, careful experiments in labs here on Earth than we can put on a spacecraft that goes out there. Yeah. So people are going to really be studying these samples to understand fundamental questions about the building blocks of planets, right? Because mm. all these asteroids, they're essentially leftovers from the building blocks when planets were forming. There used to be a bunch more small stuff. All that small stuff eventually kind of conglomerated together to make bigger stuff and yeah. these asteroids are things that never made it in right so right. if you really want to understand the ingredients right like it's like if you built a cake right you built if you baked a cake right <laughs> and you wanted to know what was in the cake it'd be helpful if you had the ingredients right beside you and right. that would help you understand the process of baking the cake <laughs> and so similarly when we uh when we analyze these samples we're analyzing the ingredients that baked planets i love that it's uh it's really crazy to me how much 
we with missions like this when we actually get to see it or like the dart mission for instance uh mm -hmm. where we we impacted uh that dual asteroid system i mean not only were we able to look at you know how did it deflect we saw so much more debris than i think i know in the simulations it was more debris than that but it seemed like it was a shower of debris um are, are there certain things that you're excited about learning about and i guess this is kind of a strange question like what don't you know that you're excited about but um are there like things that you have hope for uh, that you're going to find on on some of these new missions whether it's you know i mean juno's been doing amazing stuff mm -hmm. um are there any future missions you're excited about mm -hmm. i know there's a loaded question but very exciting. Yeah, it, it's loaded, but it's very easy to answer. So when I started my work as a PhD student, I, as I mentioned to you, I was doing magnetic fields of Uranus and Neptune. Mm. The Voyager 2 mission is the only mission that's gone out to our ice giant planets, Uranus and Neptune. That was in the 80s. Right. NASA has released its next decadal survey, which kind of talks about what its priorities are going to be for the next 10 years. Mm. And a mission to Uranus is on that list. Yeah. And like, that just makes me so happy because <laughs> it's probably going to be in the end, like 50-ish years since our last visit. But that time frame is actually kind of good because you can actually do a lot of kind of comparative planetary mm. science in that time frame. You can ask, how much did the magnetic field change in 50 years, right? right. As opposed to kind of seeing it yeah. on a daily basis. Of course, I'd love to have like constant monitoring of, of any, every planet, but... You're yeah, in a we station, get what we yeah. can. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I'm excited for um, this future Uranus mission, and I hope that everything goes on with it. The other interesting thing about it, and this is just generally how planetary science works, is that you know I'm probably going to be retired by the time this mission actually goes. Yeah. So my role, I feel, right now in this mission is almost to be a steward to bring. Yeah to train new planetary scientists and prepare them for when this mission goes, right? I can, yeah. I'm kind of that link between that old mission trained me and now I'm going to train the next mission. So it's a really interesting role that. that some, you end up getting in planetary science. You, you work on these projects that you know, you're, you're not, you might not live to see the actual <laughs> results of them actually um, happen. I love that. And, and to get a little philosophical for a second, it, um, you know, I see this even if you're, you know, you're in a job and you've got some some new employees. It's any any field, and you're trying to train them and stuff like that. It it really is like passing a flame. Like a flame is a really an amazing thing that it doesn't destroy the flame to make another flame, and it just yeah. you can keep doing that. So in essence, you're kind of lighting these candles so that when we get to that point, we we're ready. There's more people. It's it it you know. It, you couldn't do all the science anyways. So <laughs> even exactly. if you wanted to. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the book. What was the process of this? I'm always interested, especially in a, in a scientific book. Uh, what were some things you had in mind? Was, was mm -hmm. there a person on the other side of it? Was there a mission for you? How did you go about it? Yeah, I think, so first of all, I wanted to get across the fact that you, you typically hear people talk about how they stare up at the sky and at space and, and they, they're, they're wondrous about it, right? They're amazed mm. by what they see. And I was hoping to kind of get the same sort of reaction if you were to stare down at your feet and just ask the question, <laughs> what are all those amazing things happening mm. a thousand miles, 2000 miles below my feet? And so that was sort of my, um, my inspiration for, for writing the book yeah. and uh, working with a great 
science writer John Wentz. Uh, you know, we John talked Wentz about yeah. yeah, we talked about right. What are the what are the things that people would find particularly compelling? And I know for me as a scientist, the things that I find compelling. And so it was really great to be able to mm. talk to someone and be like, is this compelling? <laughs> like, yeah. compelling I really love this. This is where like, yeah. no. <laughs> so so but <laughs> what I discovered from that process is most of the stuff that I think is cool, the regular public thinks is cool too. So that's nice. good. That's good. Um, that's good. Yeah. It's but I really <laughs> yeah, it's always good. Uh <laughs> One thing I wanted that I never appreciated and I found cool when learning about this stuff, it was something I wanted to get across in the book is that, you know, on the surface of the earth, we're, we're used to materials behaving in a certain way. Like mm. if you think about water, you understand water, right? It's right. liquid, maybe it's mm -hmm. frozen, maybe it's water vapor, right. but you think you understand water. But then you ask the question, well, now put it under a million bars of atmosphere pressure and thousands of degrees in temperature and yeah. tell me what water's like. And you discover is that materials completely change the way they behave when they're under really high pressure and temperature. And you can get all sorts of neat phenomena. So in my book, I talk about, for example, the fact that there are probably diamond icebergs floating on a diamond ocean near the center of Neptune and Uranus, right? That's Not crazy. something we have here on Earth. No. That in Saturn <laughs> and Jupiter, there's something called helium rain. Uh, there's iron snow in Mercury, right? So there's all these interesting phenomena that occur because materials are just different when the pressure and temperature are really high. Mm. I, I love that. There's so much that um, that it seems like we can learn even just, like, I, I love your perspective. I think Neil deGrasse Tyson is definitely someone who's written, you know, science books that have gotten people to look up. So I love that you're, you're doing the opposite in a very, I, I want to say similar style that it's very easy to connect. Um, is there, is there anything about, say meteorites that happen to hit uh the planet or that we can recover is there anything um like what do you look for in that or do you do you guys get as planetary scientists a lot of people saying hey here's my meteorite check this out like we, we found this in our backyard really yes yes this is amazing so I, it, this was probably three or four years ago we were all kind of sitting around in my department at a having coffee and this uh father and son walked in and they had just been on a walk in the baltimore area and they came in and they're like, we found this strange iron rich rock. We're wondering if it's a meteorite. Could you check for us? And we had, unfortunately, we had to tell them that because of where they found it, it was likely from like an ore processing that happened uh, in a while. So it, it wasn't yeah. a meteorite, but mm. you do get that. And we also, interestingly, get the other side of things too, where, you know, we have some really cool rock collections that were collected by previous professors over years and years yeah. and now they're just kind of left but they're not well categorized or cataloged so every now and then you just decide to go you know i'm gonna go try and figure out where all the rocks are and you go and you find <laughs> a really cool rock and you might find a meteorite you're like oh look, this is a meteorite right so it's cool. it's interesting to see what people have kind of uh, hidden away in places that they didn't realize yeah, it it seems like there's so much. Uh, you were describing some place in the book, and and forgive me for not for not knowing this. Um, but there's there's like a specific place where there's all of these different types of rocks that um I think geologists go to, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you mentioned it. I think it was in the preface. Um, I in the preface. Let me think. In the preface, I mentioned. So I mentioned Sudbury, Ontario, which was I the town Sudbury I grew is up what in. I'm, oh, yeah. okay. So that so that was the impact crater. Gotcha. So but so tell actually, me more about that. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So so I think this is what you're referring to. So 
you know, not only did that make Sudbury a place that had lots of natural resources that, that people would mine, but it also ended up making the surface quite similar to what we expect on the moon. So for mm -hmm. example, Apollo astronauts uh, would come to Sudbury to train to look to understand what kind of rocks to look for that would be interesting when they got to the moon and collected rocks. Yeah. So a lot of the rocks in Sudbury, because the impact smashed them and caused like sort of huge um, shock effects in them, they have very specific features on them that tell you they they were affected by the shock. And we right. were interested in finding similar rocks on the moon. So uh, Sudbury was kind of a hotbed for astronaut training so um, cool. <laughs> in the 60s. <laughs> Uh, because of th this fact. So, yeah. Are there any other uh, impact places like that on Earth that you've visited or that you know of? Yeah. So Sudbury is the, uh, when I was younger, we said the second largest, but now we have to say the third largest impact oh, crater no. <laughs> on the planet. It got beat out by the Kichilub impact crater, which is in the Yucatan Peninsula and was oh, wow, yeah. related to what destroyed the dinosaurs. Ah. way back when so that one's a little bit bigger of an impact crater and the largest impact crater is in south africa um so so we're sudbury's pretty big but there are impact craters all over the place mm. um you might have seen or people might have seen the um uh arizona crater um that's a really nice visual if you're ever flying across the country you can actually yeah. your plane might go over that um but there are other interesting impact places. So I live in Baltimore and the Chesapeake Bay mm. was actually formed because of the meteor impact here long ago. So they're all over the place. The, the planet was covered in meteors, meteor uh, impacts. Yeah. Over time. yeah. And it's, it's crazy. Like the, um, I, I think one of the things that's uh, I've seen online a lot is uh, people talking about the, you know, our moon and, and the impacts that it has on it um, and how, uh, people are confused why the side that faces us have impact craters like uh, all the time when you would think it's the back. And I think um, it's, it's a good segue for kind of the scale, I think of what you're, you're dealing with. And you talked about obviously the, how different materials react in different um, pressures and temperatures that are just extreme. Um, let's talk a little bit about gravity and mass and time for uh, the planetary scientist. How how do you use those? How do those play in your kind of day-to-day? -day? And what do they mean for you that it might not mean for the, the average everyday person? Hmm, that's a great question. I'll start with gravity. Let's start hmm. with gravity. So here on Earth, we think of gravity as being this fixed number, you know, about 9.8 meters per second squared. If you're doing your high school physics classes, that's the number you plug into your physics problems to get mm -hmm. it, right? But the reality is that gravity actually changes all over the earth. So as you are walking around, you are feeling a different gravitational acceleration. It's a very tiny change, so we don't notice it, right. but we can measure it. Mm. And the amazing thing about being able to measure it is that the gravity you're sensing at any one location is actually due to the mass that's right below you. So when you see little differences in gravity as you're walking along, you're learning about how much mass is below you and that gets you to what your composition of material is below you. So we can mm -hmm. actually image the interior of the earth using gravity. The same is true for other planets. Um, the Grail mission to the moon did the same thing at the moon. The wonderful thing about the moon uh, is that you can get really close to the surface and fly around. And it, there's, so the annoying thing, let me put it this way, the annoying <laughs> thing about earth 
um, is that you have all these, first of all, you have all these surface feet, the, you have vegetation and land yeah. and, and things that we've developed that kind of hide a bunch of the surface features. Whereas on the moon, that's all laid bare. You can see right. everything. So that allows us to kind of correlate the gravity signals we see with the actual topography and the shape of the surface that we see on the moon. Right. And from that, you can learn a lot too. Crazy. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk about um, uh, mass and time. Oh, so yeah. obviously, well, you talked about mass, I guess gravity and mass are pretty. Yeah, you're right. They're, they're related. Um, time. 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 You want me to yeah. talk about time? So time's an interesting one because in many ways, the geologist thinks in much longer time scales than yeah. us human scales, right? You, it's so funny when I'm, when I'm teaching something or talking about something and I say, so for example, the formation of the earth, right? And I talk right. about how fast you went from like a tiny pebble to something about the size of earth today. Right. And you always say, and it was really fast, like a million years. <laughs> and you're like, okay, maybe that's not fast to you. <laughs> But it's fast on a geological time frame, right? Yeah. So that's that's one thing I like to think of with time is that we think in really long time scales, but some processes you wouldn't expect actually are really short. Hmm. So for example, the way our moon formed was that some sort of Mars-sized body, usually called yeah. Theia, smashed into Earth on a glancing impact, and that flung out a bunch of debris from both Theia and Earth, the proto-Earth hmm. at the time and created a disk around the earth. And you could ask the question, how long did it take that disk to become the moon? Yeah. And every time I say this answer to someone, they're like, and the answer is 40 years. Whoa. Yeah. So you could be like a kid. If, if life existed back then, you could be like a kid and then you're That's in your crazy. like 50s and you could tell your grandkids, when I was young, there was no moon, right? And so <laughs> it was just a disc. <laughs> it was just a disc. Right? So it, that kind of process actually does happen on a human lifetime scale. Wow. So, so break really that down for me. What what kind of things are happening? Is it like extreme cooling? And, and I guess, are they all impacting each other and just solidifying? So basically, you've got the, this disk of particles and gas surrounding the Earth, and mm. they're subject to the same sort of gravitational attraction that any two right. masses are. And just because of the distribution in the disk and, and the width and stuff, it doesn't take that long for them to right. all come together and form the moon. Wild. That is, yeah, I, uh, that, that, that is shocking. 40 years is crazy. That must have been, man, if you could be on the planet to watch that, that would have been that would have been crazy. That would have been really cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and is it true that it's the they it moons come in as a disc and then leave as a, as a disc? Is that is that true? Ooh. Do they start to break down? So that's interesting. So it depends. Uh, mm. If so, our moon is kind of neat because we're the way that the Earth and the Moon interact. The Moon is steadily moving away from us. Right. Right. So um, it's just going to keep doing that for like 50 billion years right yeah. but then you go to some of the moons surrounding mars for example or right. moons in the outer solar system surrounding the giant planets and some of them are actually moving inwards and if you move inwards too much then you fall into what's called like the the roche limit of the planet right. which is where you'll be tidally broken up you'll essentially experience so many stresses from the gravity of the planet that you'll be flung apart broken apart and then into a disk so for some crazy. moons, that might end up being the, <laughs> the conclusion of the moon. And in fact, one hypothesis for Saturn's rings mm. is that they formed from a moon that essentially got broken up. 
Wow. Now, Saturn and Jupiter are really interesting because they have so many moons. Um, do we see any interesting patterns with with their layout? Are they are there different types, like some going away, some coming in? Um, how does how does it work there? Yeah. So basically everything, right? There's all sorts of stuff. Um, the neat thing about moons is there's kind of two ways that you can get a moon as a planet. Mm. You could have a disc that surrounds the planet, just like the protoplanetary disc surrounded the sun. And mm. in that disc, you could have the same type of processes that created the planets happen. So for example, at Jupiter, the four Galilean satellites, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, they're pretty big. They're spherical. Um, and they probably formed from a disc that surrounded Jupiter. And they're all kind of coplanar and they all orbit the planet in the same way. But then you also have these moons that are on weird orbital angles. And some of them are orbiting backwards compared to the rest of the, the planet and everything. And those are probably captured objects. So those are probably oh, yeah. asteroids or comets that used to live very happily out in the outer solar system doing their own thing, but then got kind of gravitationally attracted to and kind of stuck to Jupiter or Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. Yeah. And so you get these moons that can behave much more wildly than the other moons because they were just kind of passing by and they got kind of tractor beamed into the planet. In, yeah. There, yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, okay. Two part question for you. Um, number one, is Pluto a planet? And number two, what about New Horizons and what we've learned from there? Uh, what does it tell you, especially with how young the surface uh, seems mm -hmm. to be okay so here's my answer for is Pluto a <laughs> planet the answer is no but it's still way cooler that it's not a planet because... i'm with you okay good good yeah so basically <laughs> unpopular but i'm with you <laughs> yeah it's it got to create its own class of planetary objects right because right. of pluto we have this new thing called dwarf planets and so it's it's like a it, it's a leader. It's it's yeah. you know started it's the king its own of the thing. Kuiper Belt. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I say Pluto is not a planet, um, but that doesn't mean it's not cool. Exactly, exactly. Uh, <laughs> in terms of the mission, uh, New Horizons, to me, like it was just fascinating to see the images of both Pluto and Charon yeah. as New Horizons flew by. And you look at that region of Jupiter, uh, of Pluto, there's a region of Pluto that's kind of bright and shiny and it's shaped mm. like a heart, which is very cute. Great. <laughs> um, and it's got all sorts of processes happening in it. We see ice flow in that region. We see signs of kind of like uh, the stuff shifting around and moving around, stuff like rolling over, all these yeah. things that indicate that there's probably a heat source a little bit deeper inside there and it's causing all sorts of tectonic activity. So the amazing thing to me is that Pluto's not dead, right? Yeah. In some ways, it's not this cold, barren place where nothing's happening. No, there's like a, a healthy, invigorated interior to that planet causing mm -hmm. all sorts of features on the surface. Yeah, and it's such a, I mean, what a beautiful moment to just capture on that flyby. I mean, flyby missions, we don't, we don't get many of them, especially one with the kind of detailed science and visual data that, that New Horizons had. Mm -hmm. Um but it's it's amazing to think that just in one flyby, our, it, it, all the books got rewritten like overnight. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, to me that that's the amazing thing about planetary science is every mission you send to a planet, you're like, okay, we got to rewrite the textbooks because we're going to discover entirely new things and because we can build on yeah. our previous knowledge. And it's just it's amazing to see how fast 
things change when you get new data from planets. Absolutely. Do you, um, I, I see this, so I, I work uh, as an engineer. Um, I'm in additive technology um, mm -hmm. right now. Um, one thing that I have found myself um, trying to help the scientific community grow uh, the idea of scientists and engineers speaking in, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, solidarities, like this can't be done, or this is what it is. As a planetary scientist, do you see that there is some of that um, kind of like, well, we know the answer. There's no, almost like there's a, I don't want to learn something new. So let's not go explore that. I, I don't think it's anything that anyone's doing necessarily on purpose, but I think it's something as people in science, I think it's something to bring up because I, I think it's only doing us a disservice. Um, so I'd, I'd love to know your take on that and, and how scientific just saying, I don't know is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great question. I think it's, it's, it's like this two-edged sword, right? Mm. In, in many ways, we're scientists. And the key thing about science is that new data results in new understandings. And so we have to follow the data. We can't pretend we didn't see that data and right. just believe the old thing, right? right? It, it's just built into it. Um, the fear sometimes of saying, I don't know, or we don't know, mm. is that people then interpret that to mean, oh, scientists don't know anything. So it can't, right? And so right. you, you mm. there's a difference between not between how certain we are of things versus how probable things are. And I think yeah. scientists like to speak, if, if they're kind of speaking to other scientists, they like to use as specific as possible kind of an explanation for things. Sure. But when that translates to the general public, it doesn't always translate, right? Yeah. Um, the For example, the, um, the IP, IPCC climate change um, reports that come out, oh. they use very specific language like when they say most likely or possibly like those have very specific scientific meanings to them that they lay out in right. the document because they wanted to avoid this issue. Mm. Um, but I think it's important that we tell people when we don't know things, because that's why we still need more scientists to do more science, yeah. right? Like I love yeah. saying none of us know how that works. <laughs> Imagine what we're going to find out when we go there. Yeah. Right. So I think that's definitely important. You also see, of course, you're going to see people who, have their, let's say, pet theory or pet mm. idea that they ref refuse to hang up, right? <laughs> refuse to give up on. Sometimes it's because it makes a lot of sense, right? Mm -hmm. But you need to kind of have enough data to show, yeah, that made sense, but it doesn't really work because it can't explain X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's hard. I think the key thing to remember here is scientists are human. Yes. And humans very much have their own kind of biases and, and mm. beliefs and so forth. And so you have to kind of always try and keep yourself grounded and understand that, you know, your ego is not um, embedded in that thing you discovered or that right. theory you have, right? The important right. thing about being a scientist is to be able to change and to follow mm. the reasoning and the the data. I love that. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, in the world that we live in today, um, I find myself looking back to uh, to Einstein and his time. Um, just the tumultuousness of the world wars, how his friend Fritz Haber went from this amazing scientist to, um, you know, 
changing world hunger to obviously going the exact opposite way with it and then fighting he goes from that to fighting the scientific community trying to show that special relativity general relativity uh is this is this new thing and then even when getting that evidence uh from that eclipse is able is still has to fight with the scientific community to get this and but today is seen as this groundbreaking thing that now someone else is trying to you know jump jump the next thing um i for me we we talk about this thing called the uh the space conundrum where we're in this period of time similar to that but but more to i would say the cold war where we're in this space race right now we access to space is exploding we are um we're able to do so much more in space than we ever were before but at the same time the social problem problems and civil rights and all these other things and chaos is coming up at the same time um i don't have an answer for why that's the case but it does seem to be cyclical in some kind of uh nature um do you see the same thing uh right now as a as a planetary scientist are you seeing this boom of of space interest and an economy and and where do you think we could best utilize that at the moment mm, great great question I think one of the things that's really driving stuff right now, and this has changed even in the last 20 years, I would say, so mm. even when I was a grad student, is that it used to be that if you were someone like me, which was means that I was interested in science, I loved the idea of exploring new things, um, but I also wanted some independence and freedom in choosing what I wanted to study and what I wanted to learn. The mm. only place that you could do that really was higher education academia. Mm. Nowadays, that's not the case. Nowadays, if you have the right toolkit, right, if you have um, skills in data analysis, skills in machine learning, skills in experimental sciences, lab-based work, mm. uh, a lot of nonprofit agencies, private industry, government agencies are doing this kind of work, and they're basically giving people that same amount of freedom as you might have in academia. So there's a yeah. lot more opportunities out there right now to, to do scientific work without being kind of um, in a very specific environment, right? So yeah. maybe the academic environment's not for you. That's okay, you can go work at NASA or you can go work for a private space company, right? So there's yeah. all sorts of different places where you can do this work. So I think that the more times you bring in a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of um, goals, in mm. doing any sort of research, you get a kind of a growth, you get growth in the field. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of growth in science in general, but planetary science also, is that mm. there's just more different groups of people working on the problems. Yeah. And that's a beautiful message. I mean, part of this uh, people of science segment, part of the reason why it even exists is because, you know, I would field so many questions from people about, you know, hey, I used to work in STEM or hey, I want to work in STEM. How do I get into this? And so being able to speak with you and so many other different people and all their different backgrounds, I think is super important. I think to to close out here, the your non-traditional path to um, to science, I think is, is really important that it wasn't necessarily like the thing that as a child, you were like, I'm going to do this, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's something that, that came 
later is 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 great and and you talked about like skill almost skill stacking which we've we've talked before you know um just putting together some skills that's going to allow you to do the thing that you want to do instead of um necessarily like you're saying the traditional path of go to school to learn all your skills and then there's a job for you on the other side um is there any other kind of advice you would have for for anyone who's who's in that position that we haven't touched on yet yeah i think i would i'm going to give some advice that i wish someone had told me when i was younger and honestly even if they had told me i probably wouldn't have followed it <laughs> but still um one thing that i think is really important is to not be afraid to fail at things. Mm. Um, I think a lot of times we end up doing the things we're doing because we were kind of good at them. We had some success in them. So we may as well keep going in that. But I think in order to have real growth, you need to try things and fail at them and, and learn from that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't do that, but maybe you'll learn something from that that'll help you in some other thing. You never know, right? So right. I, I really want people, uh, the advice I would give kind of people who are thinking about going into science or in any field really is be willing to experiment, right? And and try things and discover that, oh, you know what? That thing was not for me, but that's an important data point to have, right? Mm -hmm. um, so don't be afraid of failure, learn from failure because you can learn the most from failure actually, um, but try things and you won't know what you like until you you try it basically. Yeah, I, thank you. That was perfect. Um, so folks, Dr. Sabina Stanley, thank you so much for being on. Please go check out her book, What What's Hidden Inside Planets. Sorry, I couldn't read that backwards on my screen there. <laughs> um, uh, we'll have a link here in this episode uh, if you want to go check it out. That's available from Hopkins Press. Dr. Sabina Stanley, thank you so much for being a guest here on the podcast. Thanks so much. This was very fun. Spread love and spread science, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode of Today in Space. See you.